James 4, 1 to 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks an against another brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? to judge your neighbour. Thank you, Ross. Well, do you have frenemies? In case you're unaware, a frenemy is somebody uh, who would consider themselves to be a friend of yours, and perhaps even be someone that you would consider to be a friend. But they're also a person that you might have a uh, congenial relationship with, somebody that you are nice to and can have pleasant discussion with, but deep down, you're, you're really enemies. Yeah. And so in that case, uh, you know, there's, there's actually a, a rivalry or, or a a fundamental dislike between you and this other person. Let me ask you this morning, are you God's friend or are you his enemy or are you perhaps his frenemy? Are you for God or are you against God? Or maybe, do you want God for the good stuff, but deep down, you have other friends that you like better? This is what we are looking at in our passage this morning. And this morning, we're going to work our way through the text without me giving you any specific texts. So please make sure you have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, then the blue Bibles on the chairs uh, uh, you are welcome to use. And also, if you don't own one, you are welcome to take one home. Consider that our gift to you. 
So please, uh, let's open God's Word together and with hearts and minds open, ready to explore what He has to say. Uh, let's dive into this passage. Begin with the first couple of verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, if you've been on our journey with us, we've seen so far in the book of James that he is addressing several issues of what real faith looks like. In chapter 2, he made it clear that faith without works is dead. And in chapter 3, he began addressing issues of destructive speech, particularly those who desired to be teachers. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, it seems like what we're seeing here is James focusing on the root cause of some of those problems. It's not hard for us to imagine that this would be going on in some of the churches, given what James has already said so far. And here he gets to the heart of the problem. He gets to the cause of the quarrels that they are having amongst the churches. Let me ask you something. When you have disagreements, quarrels, fights with friends or enemies or frenemies, what would you say more often than not is the cause of the problem? Perhaps because they are being stubborn. Perhaps because they are, well, just plain wrong. Perhaps because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, in these first two verses, James reminds us, as I'm sure he was reminding his readers in the first century, that when you point the finger, there are always three pointing back at you. Don't ever forget that. Your passions are at war within you. Right from the get-go, James tells all of us not to look at others to determine the cause of our fights and our quarrels. Your Bible may have a note there to indicate that passions could also be translated as pleasures, which is the Greek word hedone, and when we, it's the word that we get uh, hedonism from. And at war within you is literally in the Greek, in your members, in the members of your body. Hey? Oh, sorry? James is saying that these passions, these desires that are fighting within each of your members of your body, they are the cause. And the use of such language causes us to think of other parts of Scripture. Paul in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the church as one body with many members. That's where the term membership comes from. When we use the term in reference to church membership at our church, we're talking about this idea found in Scripture of different members of the one body. We're not talking about signing up to your local club so that you can get your 10th coffee free. I mean, if you come here, all of your coffees are free, right? And we don't know whether James was using this language in this way for sure, but given the context, I think it's highly likely that this is what is at least happening in the back of his mind. 
And even if not, his clear point is that the fights that the church is having are because of our internal desires at war. And that leads to conflict and quarreling between the people in the church. And so right from the beginning of our passage, James hits us right between the eyes. Consider this, friends. If your desires and passions were pure and perfect, there would be no conflict or quarrels or fights. If every single person on this planet had pure and perfect desires, we would have no war, we would have no arguments, and Sergeant Brad would be out of a job. Just let that sink in. This is why optimism about humanity without taking into account the fact that we are fallen creatures with fallen desires does not and cannot solve our problems. It's why John Lennon's song, Imagine, still hasn't inspired everybody to stop fighting. But this is a problem that is not just a global one. It begins with you and me. Why do we have arguments? Why do we have disagreements? Because within us are desires at war. And when that happens, it's like putting a cat and a dog in a cage. There will be blood. James's use of desire here is most likely in a negative sense. Because, you see, desires, of course, they can be good and God-given. But not only are there bad desires like bitter jealousy, as James referred to in our previous passage, but there are good desires that can easily be twisted into bad ones such as a loving husband's good jealousy for his wife that can lead to him mistreating her. And James is just piling on the words to describe these internal motivators that drive them to conflict with each other. You look at those words in verses 1 to 2. Your passions, your desire, you covet. And what happens when these desires are not met? Murder, fighting, quarreling. Such sinful desires, when allowed to run rampant and unchecked and never resisted or submitted to God, they lead to further sinful actions. It's possible that James is referring here to actual murder. Uh, But given that he seems to say it so casually and not dwell on the point, it's more likely that he's using the term hyperbolically. He's talking about uh, such actions that will eventually lead to this kind of thing. Or it's also possible that he has Jesus' teaching uh, of the relationship between murder and anger in his mind from Matthew 5. Whatever the case, you can see that the end result, the end result of these desires that are not met is never good. And it is always destructive. James diagnoses one of the reasons why this happens. Let's continue in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James again echoes Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. 
You familiar with that verse? I'm sure you've heard it many times. Perhaps some of the people James was writing to were taking Jesus' teaching and applying it incorrectly by asking for things that were sinful desires. And this is why he elaborates and he doesn't stop there. He says, when you do ask, as Jesus told you to do, you ask wrongly because you're asking for things that are in accord with your sinful passions. James here highlights two reasons why these internal warrings and passions that we have lead to great sin. The first is that we don't ask God for things. That's one of the problems. We sit and stew and then get really upset. But the second is that we do ask, and when we do, we ask for the wrong things. And we ask them with the wrong desires. Brothers and sisters, if your struggle is that you do not ask, is that you think, I'll just keep suffering away in silence, then spend some time in Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Meditate on the fact that God is a good Father and He delights in giving good gifts to His children. So ask, ask boldly, ask confidently, ask knowing that He will give, knowing that He is generous and knowing that He is good. Kids, if I can have your attention for a moment, let me ask you something. How often do you ask your parents for things? Yeah, well, putting a number on it will be pretty hard, won't it? Lots. Do you ask them enough times that it starts to annoy them? Yeah? No, no one wants to admit that, hey. <laughs> but but you, ask, you ask your parents for things because they're your parents, right? You don't, I mean, you don't walk up to a random stranger on the street and, and ask them for $5 or ice cream. But you're, they're your parents, so you ask them for things and you constantly and keep asking them, Right? Yeah, good. Ah, thank you, Beck. I'm getting some nods. Good. Well, do you know that Jesus is saying that we have a perfect Father and that He is good and that He loves to give good gifts to His children. But remember, not to take Jesus' words out of context and think that, that, and think that being good and that being a good Father means that He should give you everything you ask for. It can be hard for us sometimes because in our culture, it's easy to think that being a good parent means giving kids everything that their heart desires. And I mean, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, then, you know, we should be able to give them everything. And that being a good parent means doing that. No, James highlights two problems here. And the second is that there are those who ask for the wrong things or those who ask with the wrong motives. You see, God wants us to ask, but because we are naturally inclined towards sinful desires, or as Jesus says it, because we are evil, because God is good, He doesn't give us the evil things that we ask for. God would never give you something evil because He is incapable of evil. And because He is good, He knows what is good for you. So kids... Tell me, do you like it when your parents say no to something that you've asked for and really want 
even though you think it's good for you? No, my, my desires are pure, says my daughter. I only ever ask for good things. Look at what Jesus says. Even though your parents are not perfect, they still know how to give good gifts. And sometimes that good gift isn't what you want. Sometimes it's a good habit that is going to serve you for the rest of your life. Even though in the moment you can't see how practicing the violin or eating your beans is good for you. So if your parents, sinful and imperfect though they are, know how to do this, know how to give you good gifts, how much more your heavenly Father? Kids and adults, don't ever forget this. Don't ever forget that you can come to God, that you can bring your requests to Him, and He will give you good things. But remember, what is truly good and what you think are good, they're not always the same thing. This is how Augustine put it when commenting on John 14, verses 10 to 14. What one therefore wishes to receive in order to turn to an improper use, God in His mercy rather refuses to bestow. Augustine is saying that God mercifully, in His goodness and in His mercy, doesn't give us things that we ask for, which He knows will harm us. And He actually goes on to say that we should be afraid of Him doing so. Because that would be his judgment on us. Brothers and sisters, don't fail to ask God for things you desire. But before you do, think carefully about whether the things you are asking for are sinful desires or godly ones. I'd wager, though, that most of the time, you're not self-consciously desiring evil things. You're not trying to want What's bad for you? More often than not, our struggle is like that of Paul's in Romans 7. We read verses in James, these verses in James 4 and we think to ourselves, God, I, I want to ask you with the right motives, but sometimes my own heart deceives me. This is the very conversation we had during question time last week. And so it's worth examining your own heart and wrestling with it continually. Don't stop. What pleasures in this life, what pleasures, what passions in this world tempt you to get cozy here? What desires make you think that perhaps, you know what, this world is going to give me a better deal than what God can give me? What sinful pleasures are you seeking that you know God will always say no to? but that they make you question whether, you know, sticking with Jesus, I don't know if this is worth it. Brothers and sisters, like Paul, don't give up. Don't give up on the struggle. Ask him to cleanse your hands and to purify your heart so that you would seek his kingdom first above all else. 
Because as you find more joy and find more satisfaction in Christ, then the more your own heart and your desires and your motives will be purified and will find great joy and contentment in Him. And so your asking will be also. Paul Tripp puts it like this. When you're satisfied with the giver, because you have found in Him the life you were looking for, you are freed from the ravenous quest for satisfaction that is the discouraging existence of so many people. Yes, it is true that your heart will rest only ever when it has found its rest in Him. Which is appropriately from Augustine. And the rest, and the reason we need to keep at this work is because the risk of leaving the one who should be our greatest love is way too high. And that brings us to verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I've said before that the term uh, brothers in Greek was often used to refer to both men and women in a group. The masculine form was used to refer to everyone. Tellingly, James here actually uses the feminine correct collective noun for adulterers. So a more literal translation would read, you adulteresses. But the reason the ESV translates it here as it does, as adulterous people, is because James is picking up on a well-known theme from the Old Testament. It is the central picture of the book of Hosea. And it was used uh, often by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others. When Israel turned away from God... The most striking picture that was used by the prophets as a metaphor for what they had done was that of a wife who left her husband to go and be with other lovers. That is the image that James is calling to mind. He is tarring these Jewish Christians with the same brush the prophets used. These passions that are at war within them and these quarrels that they are having are signs and actions of people who do not love God. The word translated friendship there in the Greek has the same root as one of the Greek words for love. I point that out simply because in our day and age, we sometimes use the word friendship and don't associate it with love at all. You know, for example, we might say that as a country, we have many diplomatic friends. I'm pretty sure most people aren't thinking of love when we use the word that way. And this Greek word translated as friendship is sometimes used in a more romantic sense as well. Very rarely, but it is, uh, has, does occur. So even though I think friendship is the right translation for English and all our English translations use that word, it seems clear to me that James is getting at a type of relationship that is not just surface-level friends, but he's talking about deep friendship. When he talks about friendship with the world, he's not talking here about uh, just uh, being an acquaintance with it. or you know, It's not talking about somebody that you might treasure in your heart, but that you never see. 
No, this is a deep and meaningful friendship. This is the kind of friendship where you have deep and meaningfuls with. The kind that has your back, the kind that you depend on, the kind that you call when your heart is broken, the kind that you share birthdays with, that you have long traditions with, that you have lots of inside jokes and many memories with. The first one you call when you have good news, the one who knows you more than anyone else. The one whose side you will be on even if the whole world was against them. And this is exactly why this kind of friendship with the world is enmity with God. Don't skim over that lightly. You cannot be a friend of the world and still be a friend of God. You must choose. Choosing one automatically makes you an enemy of the other. And that doesn't just mean that you are against him. It means that he is against you. And in the same way that you wouldn't want to be in a war against tanks and fighter jets when all you have are spears and bows and arrows, believe me when I say you do not want to be an enemy of God. Perhaps you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian. I am so glad that you are here today. And I hope that you continue to come and continue to explore what this God whom so many people for thousands of years have worshipped and devoted their lives to is all about. I hope you keep coming and exploring that. Perhaps you've heard what I've just said and you think to yourself, well, that's a bit harsh, don't you think? You know, I may not be someone who loves God, but I'm not his enemy. I like a lot of the things that he says. I do a lot of the things that he says are good things to do. It's not like I'm on a, you know, waging a war against religion or anything like that. Friend, that may be so. But God leaves you no middle ground. You can't be his frenemy. He doesn't let you strike up some kind of diplomacy between him and the world as though you're able to bridge the gap. And that's because like any loving husband, he is jealous for his bride, his friend, his beloved. He doesn't want you to betray his love He doesn't want you to commit adultery with whomever you like. And that brings us to verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. God yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Now the first thing to note here is that James isn't quoting something directly from Scripture. 
that's nothing to be worried about. And sometimes other apostolic authors will quote the Bible loosely. Jesus does the same thing as James in John 7, 38, where he says, Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You won't actually find that phrase in the Old Testament. What James and Jesus are doing here is summarizing scriptural truth. And it's worth noting that the quotation marks have actually been added by translators. You know, the original Greek that James wrote in didn't have punctuation. It doesn't take us long, though, to realize that what James is saying is very much in line with Scripture. As I mentioned before, this picture of God and His people as being like a husband and a wife is often used in the Bible. So it makes perfect sense for James to speak of God's yearning over us yearning over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Do you see what He's saying? God saves us when we turn from our sin and when we put our faith in Jesus. And in that moment, He places His Holy Spirit within us with whom we partner in order to grow in love for Him and have our passions shaped more and more by Him. His Spirit works through His Word to direct our passions and desires in a godlier direction. This is one of the ways that we recognize the difference between believers and unbelievers, between those who are friends of God and between those who are friends of the world. Friends of God have His Spirit dwelling in them, and God is jealous for that Spirit. He is jealous for you to continue on in that spirit. He desires for you to remain in Him and Him in you. But this raises an interesting question. If God desires for His Spirit to remain in you, does that mean that His Spirit can leave? Is God worried or nervous about the fact that, you know, You might do something that will make His Spirit leave. In short, can you lose your salvation? Our church's statement of faith has one whole point dedicated to this, so you can go and look at that online. But here's the first part of it. I'm not going to go into the details of it this morning, but I think this verse in this passage are an example of how The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or sometimes called once saved, always saved, does not mean that you can just pray a prayer asking Jesus into your heart and think that that means that you are set for life and you can now go and do whatever you like. Just as Jesus and the other apostles do, James is calling out the sin and the waywardness of those whom he would consider to be brothers and sisters, but are in severe danger, judging by the fruit of of their love for the world. The one who has God's Spirit dwelling in them hears such calls to repentance, such calls to turn away from their love for the world, and they respond and they turn back. They turn back to God. They seek His love and His mercy. But the one who doesn't spurns God and runs off with the other lover. In other words, the one who decides that friendship with the world is better never had God's Spirit dwelling in them in the first place. 
Friends, who is your BFF? Who is your best friend forever? Who will be your best friend forever? As I mentioned before, if your answer to that is not God, if you are still figuring things out, then let me urge you to consider Him today. God is not interested in being your frenemy. He's not interested in you being nice to Him and acknowledging Him in speeches and on your gravestone. His desire is that you be His friend, that you be His bride, His beloved. And if you're wondering how that is possible or how you do that, it is through what the Bible calls the good news, the gospel. In Romans 5, Paul describes us as those who naturally are enemies with God. We deserve His wrath. And that is what we will rightly receive. Except for, unless we become reconciled to Him and not be His enemy through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is through faith in Him. It is through turning from our sin and trusting in His finished work on the cross that we are justified and have peace. It is by rejecting the world to believe in Jesus that we become God's friends. It is by faith that we become His beloved. And if you have not done that yet, let me encourage you to talk to me or to one of our other members here at Emmaus Road. We would love nothing more than to talk to you how, about how friendship with God is just infinitely better than friendship with the world. And church, what's the status of your friendship with God? Are your eyes wandering do the alluring temptations of the world look sweet to you? Are you being polite with God, but deep down you know He's your frenemy? Perhaps you find it difficult to assess where your heart is at, again, as we talked about last week. Well, one way to do it is to consider the fruit of the passions that are at war within you. What desires do you have that don't have anything to do with God? What unmet pleasures, what things that you crave, what passions that you want cause you to be stroppy and impatient and quickly frustrated with others when they are not met? What things have you asked for from God that He has said no to again and again? Maybe even good things which have caused you to start thinking that maybe, maybe He isn't good. Perhaps on the other side of things, what worldly passions have you dressed up in religious garb? What things are there in your life present that you are chasing, that you are indulging in, that you know deep down, if you dig down deep enough, is not something that you are doing for God or because you love Him or for His glory, whatever it is, but that you have somehow in your mind kind of managed to twist it or dress it up in religious garb so that it looks like it's something for God. Brothers and sisters, 
a deep exploration into the grand canyon of our souls, would discover a love that is so shallow in comparison with God's love for us. But thank God, thank God that He is not like us. Thank God that He is a friend like no other. If you've experienced the kind of friendship that you know will never let you down, that is a mere echo of the kind of friend that God is. And that brings us to verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. Brothers and sisters, as deep as your sinfulness is, God's ocean of grace is more than adequate to fill it. The Mariana Trench is almost 10 times deeper than the Grand Canyon. And yet the ocean fills it completely and still has miles of water above it. He gives more grace. Praise God. You might think to yourself, I've messed up too many times. My passions are so unreliable. I find myself loving the world all the time. Surely God would not want me. Surely I'm damaged goods. Surely I'm lovable garbage. Unlovable. Friend, he gives more grace. And this time, James actually does quote scripture from Proverbs 3, 34. And that looks different to us in English, but James is actually quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament directly. Just as God did with Israel when they played the harlot, when they ran off with other lovers, He shows grace and more grace to those who humble themselves before Him. This is why grace is so amazing. Because even though we treat God as a frenemy and sometimes even as an enemy, He gives more grace. Even though our own limited love so easily runs out of forgiveness and grace for others, God's never does. Even though we grow tired and we grow impatient with our own enemies, with our own frenemies, with even our own friends, God never does. He gives more grace. He gives it to all who humble themselves before Him. Friends, if you think that your sins are too many, His mercy is more. His mercy outnumbers them by infinity. This is why James can go on with the rest of this section. Let's read from verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He 
will exalt you. Look at this list of instructions. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. You see, all of this, all of these instructions that James is giving, they are unpacking what it means to be humble before him. The first two are all about ensuring that your loves and your friendship are facing the right way. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. As we saw last week, demonic things are basically synonymous with that which is earthly and unspiritual. And resisting the devil doesn't mean uh, that you have to have a weekly exorcism appointment with your local pastor. As, as fascinating as I think that would be for, to have to do that. No, resisting the devil means being an enemy of the enemy of God. It means being on God's side and resisting his enemy. That means hating the things that the devil loves and loving the things that the devil hates. And it means loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. And how do you discover those things? How do you discover what it is that God loves and what he hates? Well, the same way James is able to make these points through his word. Look at Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are your thoughts and are your passions being shaped by a humble submission to the word of God? Do you continue to go to it, to seek to have your heart shaped and transformed? Submit to God. Resist the devil. The next set of instructions. In verses 8 and 9, draw from the same ideas found in Zechariah 1 and Malachi 3. James is basically saying when he says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, that, that this is the same as what the prophets used to say when God spoke to his people and when God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, he's talking about his readiness and his willingness to meet those who humble themselves and, to, and who come to him. You know, this isn't, this isn't a transaction that says, you know, God will only draw near to us when we draw near to him and that he's not going to do anything unless you do that. That's not how it works. Such a view would throw out God's loving initiative in salvation that we see all over the Bible. And so the instructions to cleanse ourselves and to purify our hearts, they are not God trying, you know, leaving it to us, trying to tell us to do this by our own strength. No, our purification comes by His gracious coming towards us as we come towards Him. You might remember last week during question time, Brayden talked about how justification, our salvation is monogistic. It's God who, who does it, who initiates it. Yet our sanctification is synergistic. It's something that we partner with the Holy Spirit in as we seek to strive to live for Him. 
Notice James, once again, is bringing up the double-minded as he did in chapter 1. It's the perfect description of a person who is flirting with the world. That's basically what a frenemy is. And James finishes this set of instructions with being wretched and mourning and weeping. In the Old Testament, the prophets called for this in the face of God's judgment. That was more often than not the, the direction. An example is Jeremiah 6, 26. Friends, this is a stern warning. James is calling God's people, like the prophets of old, to return to their greatest love. To return to their bridegroom. This is what humbling ourselves before the Lord is. All of these imperatives, all of these directions that James gives, that we must do as friends of God, they happen by His grace. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Do you notice how even that verse is humbling? The one who humbles themselves before the Lord recognizes that they don't themselves, they don't, sorry, exalt themselves because it's the Lord Himself who does it. Not only that, but humbling yourself means not even wanting to be the one who exalts yourself. Friendship with God means recognizing that He is the Lord and that it is infinitely better to live as a subject and friend of the good King than to be a so-called free enemy. And that's at the root of it, isn't it? The enemy of the Lord is the one who wants to be the Lord. The enemy of the Lord, so more often than not, is the one who wants to take control of their lives and live without God ruling it, as if that were possible. And that brings us to our final couple of verses for this passage. Let's read together from verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It might seem like these two verses are a little bit out of place. But given what James has already said about the tongue in chapter 3, and the fact that those wannabe teachers, they're likely still lurking in this passage in the background of whom James is talking to. And that conflict and quarreling you know, usually happens with words. I think it's a bit easier to see how this, these two verses connect with what we've just looked at. What's perhaps trickier, though, is what James is trying to say. Some look at these verses especially that last sentence, and you might too. And they might think and connect in their minds to Matthew 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, Judge not, and that you be not judged. 
And as is often done with this verse in Matthew 7, it's used to say that, you know, a person should never judge another person. But that misses the point of Matthew 7 and James 4. Do you notice how James is focusing on speaking evil against one another? It's not just any kind of speech. It's not just any kind of judgment. His focus is on the fact that the brothers and sisters in these churches were slandering one another. They were saying wrong things about each other in order to try and get what they wanted. They spoke against each other. They have become judges of the law because they are acting according to their own law and not God's law. After all, what is law unless it's actually enforced and lived by, right? That's why he says, you are living according to your own law. You're saying that your law is better than God's law. I'm not sure if you heard about what happened in Seattle a couple of years ago. There was a protest which became permanent. At first, it was called CHOP, standing for Capitol Hill in Seattle, Occupied Protest. And then, as time wore on, and they realized, hey, no one's doing anything about this, they changed the name and became the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Basically means they became a city within a city. And they sought to live according to their own rules. This is what James is talking about. The residents of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle became judges over the law of the rest of Seattle. They decided that their laws were better. James is speaking to those who aren't judging one another according to God's law, but who are playing by their own rules in order to get what they want. This is the difference between framing somebody and reporting a crime. This is the difference between running a business and running the underbelly. It is the difference between, on one hand, seeing an opportunity to throw the book, even if it's God's law book, at somebody in order to get what you want, and on the other hand, submitting yourself to God's law and in love desiring to bring a brother or sister along with you in order to obey it. This is why James and Jesus' words here are not contradictory at all with Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, where he literally instructs the church to judge those in the church. James is not thinking about the kind of judgment that brings a person to greater obedience to God, to greater love for God. He's talking about the kind of judgment that comes from a friend of the world. The kind of judgment that does not come from someone who has humbled themselves before the Lord, or who has resisted the devil, or who has drawn near to God, or who has cleansed their hands, or who has purified their hearts. James is perfectly fine with the other kind of judgment. You know, that's evident in everything that he's said so far in this letter. He's made plenty of judgments about these Jewish Christians, hasn't he? He has called them to greater obedience to God. And this is made even clearer by the final verses in the book, which we'll get to in a few weeks. 
No, James here is concerned about the one who is not humbling themselves before God and who is not recognizing that God is the only lawgiver and judge. The one who seeks to do what they desire. And he's reminding us that we must do this because God is the only one who has the ability and the authority to save and to destroy. See, this is the thing about this Seattle Chaz. You know, they thought that they had autonomy. They thought they had created their own little utopian society, right? And they were like, we've got this. But the reality is that the rest of the world looked on and they were just waiting for the day when the might of the American military would come in and shut the whole thing down. We all knew it could happen. I was waiting for that to happen. In the end, the whole thing just fizzed. They didn't have to do that. But I'm sure it would have if they needed to. And that is a tiny analogy of what James says there in verse 12. Even when we think that we have power and autonomy and the rights to judge God and His law and think that we know better, such deluded visions of our own godlikeness come crumbling down in the presence of the judge. Friends, that is true now. It may not seem like it, It may seem to you like, meh, we're kind of ruling it in this world of ours where we've got everything. But it is true. And you will see it to be truer than anything else you have ever considered in your life on the day when Christ returns. Jesus has already come to save He did it 2,000 years ago. He offers you that salvation today by calling you to turn from your sin and to trust in Him. When He comes again, it will not be to save. It will be to judge. And on that day, He will save His friends. Those who have humbled themselves before God and submitted to Him and continue to do so. And on that day, He will judge His enemies. They will receive the wrath they deserve. Friends, all of us deserve to be God's enemies. The question is whether we will choose to receive His salvation and His friendship and then continue to turn back to Him in humility as His Spirit leads us to. Or whether we will decide that we can get a better deal from the world 
and live instead as God's enemy. Or worse, to think that we can have the best of both worlds by being God's frenemy and deceive ourselves into thinking that we've managed to straddle that line. Brothers and sisters, do not let your passions that are at war within you win the battle for your own heart. Turn to Him and recognize that He gives more grace. Will you humble yourself before our great Savior and Judge today? Let me finish this morning by praying a prayer written by Stephen Charnock, a 17th century pastor. Let's pray together. Lord, is it not better to make me your friend than to let me continue as your enemy? Would you not be glorified more by raising a soul from sin than a Lazarus from the grave? Your power and mercy are shown greater by turning a dry stump into a fruitful and flourishing tree. So overcome my shameful nature by your merciful power. Change me from a venomous to a dove-like nature. I would be made happy to glorify you by becoming what I was created to be. Glorify yourself by creating my heart anew that I may glorify you in newness of life. I cannot get a new heart by my own strength, but it is not too hard for your power, and it matches your promise. Amen.